Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. Today, we're happy to welcome you to an episode where we're trying to do something a little bit different. We're talking to James Van Russell, who's not a VC, but a provider of corporate finance and CFO advisory services for VC-funded startups. Join us as we try to tease out learnings valuable for early stage VCs. Listen in and let us know if you like it or not. We really want your feedback on this one. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors. Do you get cold inbound deal flow that you'd wish you could help but can't invest in? You might consider directing them to the European VC's newly launched self-paced fundraise acceleration program and community. It's tailor-made for founders about to raise their pre-seed or seed round and gives them a clear 10-step process to go from wanting to raise to ready to raise. It's community-centered, giving them access to mentors and fellow founders to spar with around their process, plans, and pains. Stop sending founders on their way with an empty referral to another VC firm or angel group. Send them to a community and resource that will actually help them go from minus cold outreaches to a deliberate fundraising plan that will actually work. Send them to the europeanvc.com forward slash raise. We always ask our guests, tell us about yourself, tell us about hobbies, you know, stuff you like to do. So I'd love to hear a bit about yourself. I was born in Belgium, so I'm Belgian originally. My mother's English, my dad's Belgian. Went to school in Belgium, went to college in England, got an itch to go to the US. Most of my best friends in college were Americans for whatever reason. And I'd gone to the US a couple of times to play tennis. The best ticket in is a student visa. Uh, so I went to business school down at Rice University in Texas for two years and then came out of that and started working on Wall Street for Montgomery Securities in San Francisco first. And then I transferred to New York when they were acquired by Bank of America. And it became Bank of America Securities. Now it's Merrill Lynch. So I did that for about eight years, working in the public markets with hedge funds and mutual funds, taking companies through the IPO process, grew tired of that and switched over into microfinance on the private side and international. And so I was a full-time CFO for five years, working for a microfinance network in the Pacific. We were launching and operating banks on islands like Fiji and Samoa and the Solomon Islands and Tonga. And so set up a couple of holding companies, tax structure. And then I got married moved back to San Francisco and decided to start my own company. And really what kicked it off was some of the largest investors in the microfinance network started asking me to look at their portfolio companies and helping them out on the CFO side. And so that's how my current company, Van Russell Ventures, has bloomed or blossomed into a corporate finance company that does I always say, you know, we don't do accounting, we don't do tax necessarily, but we do all the CFO strategy, the corporate development, the M&A, the financial planning and analysis, really everything that's forward-looking to scale, not backward-looking. 
What got you into those companies in the beginning? What were the VCs asking you to do in the startups? Were you an interim CFO or were you doing what you're doing now more in the strategy side? Yeah, it was more as an interim CFO, but there was always a catalyst. And most of the time there were two catalysts. One of them was, you know, the company's nearly out of cash. Can you help them right now? And the second one usually has to do with internal controls and some level of fraud happening and really needing to tighten things up. So those are the two main problems that I always see. And how about in your practice today? What are you focusing on here? Because you're still working with VCs and helping startups get ready for their rounds and for the professionalization that comes with getting external investors on. It's a little bit across the board. So a lot of times the sweet spot is around C to Series B. The professionalization typically happens for companies that when we come in and doing pretty well, we like to see companies that have been bootstrapping, you know, might already be somewhat profitable, you know, to be able to scale and really grow the product and pivot a little bit, they need a big infusion of cash. So there's a decision to be made. Do we want to stay smaller or do we want to get really big fast? And that's when the fundraising round comes in and the fundraising round could be VCs, but it could also just be family offices. You know, VCs want to see a hundred X return family offices, only want to see 20 to 40x, right? And some businesses can't do 100 or more x. It's just not the business model. But the risk is far lower. And so whether we do the equity or even, you know, we start with debt, because there are some smaller debt providers now as well, they all want to see a data room. So they're all going to do due diligence. And so you need to have all those documents ready to go. That can take a long time or it can take a short amount of time. It just depends. What is your perspective on then prepping for a fundraising round? What's your perspective on the role of the existing investors? How can they best act both towards the CEO and the team, but also towards the oncoming investors? How should they act? What should they think about? If you already have a few serious investors on the cap table, I think the most important thing that they can do is to be confident in the company. Typically, investors will interview especially if they raise venture debt or they raise something else, they will have one-on-one conversations, interviews with the current board members who are VCs, independent members, the other investors, and just say, if everything goes wrong, are you still going to be there to help them out? So if a VC pulls out, if they renege and all of a sudden there's cash liquidity issues and they only have a couple of months left, will you step in? Do you have enough cash in Series A fund to keep supplementing the company. What are your thoughts around the fact that, you know, part of the VC's job is knowing when to invest, but also knowing when not to invest so they can double down on the winners of the portfolio. And so with what you just said, this it creates somewhat of a dilemma, it feels, right? Between that kind of almost fiduciary duty that a VC has versus, you know, the value add duty, whatever you want to call it, to that specific startup or supporting in that fundraise. What are your thoughts about this dilemma and how to deal with it as an investor? I think who you have as an investor is really important. And I think you have to be very careful. And I think some investors play well together and some don't. And I would say most of the bigger investors know each other. Reputation is everything. And so if an investor pulls out at the last minute or is not honest or does something that hurts another investor, it'll be known very quickly. There's the value-added investor and then there's the investor that provides the cash and is upfront about not adding that much value. And that's just how they operate. You know, the value add is super important. The VC's network is super important. And 
there are always instances where all of a sudden you raise the seed fund and then you say, right, 18 months from now, we're doing the Series A and here are the milestones and it just doesn't work. And so it doesn't work and the VCs are used to that. But if they do truly believe in it and they have invested a couple of rounds already, it gets very hard to not keep backing the company. Companies have always been warned that don't go for an investor that is just dipping their toe in the water. If they're only investing 0.1% of their fund, then don't go with them because it's too easy to pull out. You really want to have an investor that's all in, truly believes, and is going to be the anchor for the next round as well. I guess the extreme opposite of that, we talked about this in a previous episode, the extreme opposite of that would be being able to join a big syndicate of business angels or young advisors who have some cash ready to invest. And if you can join a syndicate of enough of these guys, they will be deeply invested in your startup as an individual. However, you miss out a bit on the professionalization level that a bigger structured VC fund that maybe could do the same exact investment and it would be less than 0.1% of their portfolio, right, can bring. So it's also interesting to understand, you know, where do you draw the line? And I'd argue that it's partly a function of the stage of development of the company. So if it's pre-seed, seed, 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 whatever, would you agree? What are your thoughts? Do you think it's more complex than that? I think the VC business is very relationship-based. The way venture capital firms work is they want to get a huge funnel of leads of good companies. And then when everybody knows who the good companies are, they want to have a seat at the table. And that's when the big players get the seats. By putting in the bigger investments, you do make a name for yourself. I mean, there's higher risk, but that's what I would expect when I raise a round. It's very much, you know, who are your top two investors? You know, every time you talk to a CFO, it's always, you know, what's the risk? Like what's... <laughs> You know, tell me the worst case scenario and I don't want any surprises. Those are the two questions you always ask yourself. And so you always have to hedge yourself against that, making sure that those top two investors, the top two VCs are the ones you want to be playing with from seed all the way to IPO potentially is crucial. Last year, I worked with a unicorn at the kind of series D, series E level, and they still had series A VC board members. So they've gone, you know, multiple years and you want those individuals to have good names because when the Series D people come in, they don't necessarily want board seats, but they do want to see that the people that are on the board are very solid. And so the names of those Series A, Series B VCs is important. I want to shift tension for a while now into a different topic, which is how to improve a startup's investment readiness. And I'm sure it's something that you could talk for hours if we allowed you. I'm interested in, in obviously understanding what that means, trying to kind of distill that sentence into what that means on, a, on an operational basis as an investor working with the startup. But also, you know, a lot of our listeners are either, you know, emerging managers or maybe pondering. I know for a fact, some of them are pondering to start a micro VC, a small fund as a way to break into venture. Resources are extremely limited in these cases. And they're kind of, even as investors, they're also kind of entrepreneurs and hustlers because they're kind of making everything work as quickly as they can. So I would ask you not only to kind of guide us what that means, but also kind of tips or lessons for these kind of early emerging uh, managers, things that they can think of or ways that they can go about it to help the startups actually? You know, I think there are definitely some rules of thumb that you can use. These days, you know, it's a gig economy and everything gets outsourced. And so when companies are really small, it's much cheaper to outsource things. You know, you'll have outsourced bookkeeping firms and outsourced tax accountants and outsourced CFOs and, you know, where you can decide how many hours a month 
you want to pay. And I feel like that's where you get the most professionalism as well, because if you don't pay a lot or if you don't have the ability to pay a lot and you need to get an individual accountant, they're a good bookkeeper, but they don't have, you know, they can't see two steps ahead, right, of what is really needed, how things need to be presented. If you see a company that's already working with an outsourced accounting firm that has a good reputation, you know that the books are clean. That's a huge check mark. And I come into companies all the time where, you know, if there's no audit, I would never assume that the books are in order. If there's a part-time CFO or somebody senior, you know, you know that there's a certain level of best in class as well. And so just seeing those things pop up is really important because at the end of the day, you're investing in the company's product or service, which is the outward facing thing that what they're going to sell. But then you have the back office, the enablement function of finance, accounting, taxes are in order. There's no hidden tax liability. HR is working well. The team is functioning properly. There are no outstanding liabilities there of unsigned contracts or potential lawsuits that are hiding somewhere. You know, those are the biggest, I see, risks out there to the due diligence. And then the VC can really say, okay, do I believe the industry the company's in? Do I believe their product has enough go-to-market, you know, product-market fit, go-to-market action? Are they producing some revenues? Then they can do what they're used to, looking at the activation and the whole back office, which is where the skeletons lie, you know, has been taken care of. We talked about this before, but the preparation of the data room up to a funding round, what would you say are the best in class there? What really needs to be there? And how do you go about making sure you prep that data room correctly? So I think that there are certain things that are very standard. You've got the financials, you've got it with the top 10 customers, you know, all those things. But I think here's where advisors and or board members can really help. Typically, the board members, they want to see the analysis. They want to say, if it's about sales, what is your churn rate? What percentage of your sales are the top 10, top 25 customers? And so there's a lot of data gathering that needs to happen. And it's very hard for the CEO to all of a sudden say, right, we're going to raise money because it takes time to generate the information, even if you have a balance sheet and an income statement. And so that prep work needs to be there. Once you've decided on here are the targets, here are the KPIs, then it's just, you know, automated. You just keep doing it over and over again. There is the, you know, the general financial stuff, but then there's the KPIs, the unit economics, the activation, all those metrics that are sometimes very difficult to measure, like customer acquisition costs, that need to be in there. And when would you say, James, that startups should think about implementing these KPIs with the view of getting ready for a funding round, not with the view of managing their business in the day-to-day, but preparing for the funding round? Usually, corporate finance companies, CFO companies, they make sure their clients are always ready for a funding round. You know, it might not be in a data room, but all the documents are there. They're all ready to go. They're clean it'll take two weeks to fill the data room. You know, and this is one of the benefits of using an outsourced firm that's really good is you're going to pay at a different pricing scale. The junior people are lower, but maybe they do 80% of the work and the senior people do 5% and they're expensive, but you'll have that strategic mind looking at everything. And they will have gone through a lot of audits as well. And so the preparation of the whole back office system is set up for a bigger company. You know, it's already, it's prepped, it's ready to go. And so if you need a Honda, you don't want to pay for a Ferrari, 
but you can still have a souped up Honda ready to go <laughs> and make it look really, really good. Something that we like talking about a lot in our podcast is also the process of European companies going global. And that, in many cases, <laughs> means going to North America, <laughs> specifically the States. What's your experience in that, you know, working with these type of companies? So companies that are not only, you know, doing a fundraise, a bigger fundraise and, and kind of professionalizing everything a bit more, typically I would say Series B, Series C, but also doing this shift, you know, from Europe to the States, you know, are there interesting learnings there, eventually potential trends that you've seen or different ways of operating or functioning between US, European companies? What I usually see with the startups is from Europe, they'll land in New York first and they'll join a co-working space there. In California, you know, you want to go to California as well to sell, but typically you'll just, it'll just be a sales office. So you'll see a couple of salespeople there and that's it. Whereas in New York, you'll have, you know, a few more people. So maybe you'll have four people in New York, two people in San Francisco, depending on the size of the company. I've seen product launches in the US, you know, everything's from Europe, but they need something to launch a product. So they do have to create an entity to create financials and set something up. So there'll be kind of a pre-revenue setup, and then they'll start selling and prototyping a product. That's the extent that I've seen. And then afterwards, it can blossom and grow. But initially, it's very much, you know, how do I put one foot in the States and see if the market works? But, you know, a lot of times, you know, with software, the way the software needs to work in the U.S. is different from Europe, different rules, different regulations, different ways that the consumer operates and buys, just very different. That's also very much true for the back office where the skeleton lies, yeah. <laughs> as you were saying. <laughs> any, any thoughts or comments on that specifically? Because it is a big change, right? You want to find the right outsourced ecosystem. So you, you want to have that corporate attorney that works with startups and can set things up properly legally. You know, you want the accounting team five hours a week to do the books and make sure that you're compliant with filings and taxes. And I think initially that's probably it. And then it's really great. Now the product needs to work and now we need to sell and partner with people. And I think from an HR standpoint, I've seen, you know, Europeans come across and I've seen Americans being hired as well. So you do need to understand that a little bit, but typically the accounting firm should have some knowledge of that or they have an HR person who works there as well who can help. Is there any kind of um, topic you'd like for us to explore before we close the recording? Anything you were expecting to have a chat about that we didn't talk about? A topic that I deal with a lot is, you know, the different types of funding, you know, what can go wrong. What I see a lot is, you know, the company comes, says I need to raise and they go around the VC circuit. But while they're doing that, they're running out of cash. What do they do in the meantime? You know, and, and if the VC sees like, oh, they're in a little bit of trouble, should they say, oh, I'll come and bail you out? Or, hey, I'm going to wait a few months and just see if they can figure it out themselves. Yeah, yeah. yeah but uh, we'd love to hear more about that. So do dive in, James. Or how do you counsel? <laughs> yeah, I think it's always around being prepared for the worst. I always try and make sure that you have the right banking relationship with a good startup bank. That's really important because you can get a credit line. A lot of times they will match any equity raise with debt as well. So that's really helpful and you can use their ecosystem. I see bridge loans or bridge investments frequently from the chairman of the board. You know, they might have an unofficial board or, the, or it might be an official board, but it's a founder or the co-founders 
and they brought in a chairman, like a really senior person that's been successful in the industry. And maybe they just need a million dollars to extend the runway to raise that round. And the chairman will just come in and say, you know, here's a million. And I want it at this valuation that the VCs are going to get. So that I see quite a bit of as well. You know, the small business administration, the SBA also has loans. There's like little pockets of money in a lot of different places. And so I think proving that the company is nimble to the VC as well and showing their expense structure. Because what one of the things that I always tell people is, you know, you can control your expenses, but your sales are uncertain. And so, you know, having a tight grip on your expenses and continuing to be lean and mean is super important. So those are kind of the main things that I would look at as the founder, but also as an investor to make sure that they're looking at. Yeah, make sure it's always ready for when the tides are always, low. Always ready. You're talking about the fact that whilst you're raising cash is still burning when should the investor come in and help out or should he just wait and, and see what happens i was thinking that in the beginning of covid i heard of more bridge rounds than i had before within my network do you feel this is something that in the early stages of the pandemic situation we saw becoming an issue and then kind of just got solved because you know investors started investing in a new way basically do you have any learnings from that period as well because i guess you've seen some interesting stuff yeah that definitely happened I saw an investor walk away. The term sheet was there. The deal was pretty much done. And then COVID hit and they wanted a better deal. They came back and the company walked away, even though it was very challenging. Yeah, there was a lot of tension. The company needs to build in buffer, you know, and it's that runway extension. It's like, how long is the runway? You know, you can always extend it by at least three more months, which kind of comes to the, what is my monthly cash cushion? You probably never want to be below three months. As a CFO, you realize things that investors might not realize until they've gone through it. Typically, the monthly burn of a company is their payroll. Payroll is about 75%. You know, if you take 12 months, you know, there is vacation accrual. There are all these liabilities. So if the company shuts down, you're going to have one month of expenses to pay out. So if you don't shut down with one month of expenses, you're in the red. Hmm. So there's all these little things that are there that are not obvious until you've gone through or the red flag's been raised. One other hack that I've been wanting to write a blog about, but I haven't done it yet. As an investor, it's interesting to see how a company raises. Let's say it takes six months to raise the funds. It's going to take the investor, you know, 75% of his week to do the fundraising. How does the company structure its team? And so I think you want to have a fundraising team. So there's the CEO you actually might want to hire a scheduler, an admin person, and you'll have your finance team that's spending half their time constantly tweaking models and sending things out. So you have a fundraising team, and then you want to have a separate operating team. And I've seen a lot of co-founders split themselves where the CEO does the fundraising and the other founder, whatever role that person was in, COO or strategist, stay in the operational side. But if there's only one founder, I've seen people hire outsource COOs to take care of the business for six months so that, you know, when all these milestone promises happen, the company is still running very well. And so seeing that split into two teams, I think is another sign that the company is really knowledgeable about how to be successful, not just, you know, this round, but setting themselves up for success in the next round. 
at which stage do you see these dynamics? Is it, as you started out saying, Series A up until Series C or so? Yeah, I mean, from I'd say from Series A onwards. Yeah, yeah. The same way that you talk about having a scheduler, an admin person, we talk to them about really owning up to their schedule mm -hmm. in the sense of working in sprints yeah. and doing the fundraising instead of just going all around and, and satisfying everyone's agendas except their own. Mm -hmm. So that's one tip that we talk a lot about. And then another one is, you know, it needs to be the CEO doing the fundraising. Because yeah. what we see in pre-seed is the temptation to hire consultants, to hire, mm -hmm. you know, advisors, to hire whatnot. So it's interesting because there seems to be a parallelism there between, you know, later stages and early stages, similar challenges, actually similar tips in terms of ways to think about it. Is that something that you've had thought yeah. about already in the earlier stages, these challenges that you were actually just referring to? It's like you said, the CEO, it has to be there at all rounds, you know, not just the seed rounds, all rounds. And so it's, you know, who can stay and do the work, right? Who can keep doing the work? It's in Europe as well, but, you know, it's growing like wildfire here in the US of these startup studios where you go in and they give a lot of money at the early stages. And so I think that at least bypasses the pre-seed round and kind of gets you set up for the seed round. It's interesting. It is a tendency in Europe as well. It's actually a topic that we are going to cover in the podcast. But you also see there's different models in the startup studio. A couple of them that actually are successful within their thesis is more almost kind of corporate innovation studio where they're building for the trade sale. Others are more building for the safer route. So they're not aiming at the 100x returns, they're aiming at the 2010x and that works. I don't see a lot of them working for the 100x. There are some, of course, especially former operators and entrepreneurs that start studios, but that space seems to be less crowded, right? At least here. Yeah, 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 it's new, it's new. James, I must thank you for your time. It was really, really nice having you and uh, we hope to keep in touch with you. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is great. Our pleasure. Always like talking about this stuff. Yeah, you too, James. It's always fun. Take care. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors.